0: Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Stephen Brannan. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. If you are joining us online, we have a link posted in our video that is a link to the page that has both our service book in a PDF form and also today's bulletin. Um, If you haven't yet clicked on that and gotten the bulletin, go ahead and do that so that you can follow along with what I want to guide us through. Actually, I'm not going to be guiding us through it. I'm going to be walking us back through it because we've just been through it. I want to take us back through what we have just experienced in the last several minutes, which is a reading from the sixth chapter of the book of Romans, St. Paul's letter to the church in Rome, beginning with verse 19. We had a reading, and then we had what's called the gradual chant, which is the chant that's sung as the... um, as the ministers make their way to get the Holy Gospel book and then process that Gospel book out so that it can be read. And then we had, of course, the reading of the Gospel. And these things, Sunday by Sunday, every Mass, can just sort of flow through time and through our experience without a lot of um, attention being paid to each of these parts, and especially how each of these parts relates to each other, but we try not to do things without a purpose or an intention in the church, especially during the divine liturgy. So when we are reading scriptures and then chanting things and then reading scriptures, there is almost always a unifying principle tying these things together that would be beneficial for us to understand. So I'm just going to walk us right back through what we've encountered in the liturgy in the last few minutes and try to bring out that tie that binds them all together. So again, beginning with our epistle reading, it was Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. St. Paul says this to the Romans, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Just as you once yielded your members to impurity, and to greater and greater iniquity, so now yield your members to righteousness for sanctification. So, right off the bat, we hear that Paul's making a dichotomy. He's telling the Roman people that they once yielded themselves, their members, their bodies, their uh, talents, their minds, all the things that make us us. They used to yield all those parts of themselves over to what did he call it? Impurity which resulted in greater and greater iniquity. And then he says, now yield those same members, all those parts of ourselves, to righteousness for what's the new end? Sanctification. And then he uses a, a, a metaphor about slavery. He says, when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regards righteousness. In other words, you were slaves to one thing, but you were not enslaved to another thing. You weren't servants of another thing. So if you're slaves to sin, you're not slaves to righteousness. But then what return did you get from essentially being slaves to righteousness? Or being slaves to sin, he asks. The end of those things is death. That's what you get for being a servant to sin. You get death. That's what you get paid in the end. But now you have been set free from sin, so you're no longer a servant to sin. And have become slaves or servants to God. And the return you get from him is sanctification. And its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. When you are servants to sin, what you get paid in the end is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you are servants to God... You don't get paid eternal life as if you have earned it, like you've earned this wage of eternal life. It is a gift. It's beyond anything that you could ever earn through working. But it's a much better deal, I think. So this dichotomy that Paul is uh, drawing for us, either yielding yourselves and being servants to sin or yielding yourselves and being servants to God, result in two very different things. One is uh, the wages of sin um, and unrighteousness and uncleanness and impurity. All of this adds up to basically buy you death. That's where the end of that leads. But all of the things that you get paid and the fruits of your work when you're a servant to God These things are righteousness and sanctification, and they add up and end with the free gift of eternal life. This uh, dovetails perfectly with the words that we pray every even song, um, that last final thanksgiving when we say that everything is for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. The wages, the means are grace and sanctification, and the hope and the final end and free gift is glory. So, This is the theme of our epistle, right? We're talking about changing our lives, becoming working for God in order that we attain sanctification and eternal life. And then we said, thanks be to God. And then what did we hear? We heard this gradual chant. Come, ye children, and hearken unto me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. It's almost like the church is saying, now that you've just heard this, now that you've heard this epistle reading, this message from St. Paul, we hear the words of a psalm. It's the words of the church herself saying to us as we're journeying along in this liturgy, come children and hearken to me and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Come, make a journey of your hearts. Come with me during this gradual, the word gradual, by the way, the, the name for that chant is uh, for the, the, the gradations, the steps that you take in order to literally ascend toward the altar in order to get the gospel. And to, it's, it's a journey. We go and we take the gospel and we process it out into the people. That's why this is called a gradual chant. And as we are graduating the gospel from one place to another into our midst, we hear the, the voice of the church saying, come ye children, come, come with me. Hearken unto me, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And it ends with, they had an eye unto him and were enlightened, and their faces were not ashamed. That's what happens when we come with the church and listen and gain a fear of the Lord. We develop an eye unto the Lord and become enlightened, and our faces are not ashamed. We are no longer servants of darkness and impurity, and our faces are now bright, And this led us now, finally, to our gospel passage today, which comes from St. Mark chapter 8. And it begins with Jesus again surrounded by a giant crowd. And this is what he says. The gospel begins, in those days when a crowd, a great crowd, had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples and said to him, said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me three days now. Anytime there's a number in the gospel, pay attention. It doesn't matter what the context is, it doesn't matter if you're reading the passage you've read a hundred times, if you read a number, stop and think for a moment. Why did I just hear a number? What is this number about? Three days the people have been with him now and have nothing to eat. What else happened in the time period of three days in the Bible? Well, in the Old Testament, there was the story of Jonah who was in the belly of the fish for three days. And Jesus actually makes reference to that story at one point when the people are asking him for a sign. How do we know who you are? Show us some sign. And he says, the only sign you will see is the sign of Jonah, meaning he was hidden in the fish for three days. So, of course, the sign Jesus was referencing about Jonah was pointing toward his own death when he would be in a tomb for three days. Friday evening, Saturday, and early on Sunday morning, he would arise. So if he's saying that these people have been with him three days and the gospel writers remembered that and thought it was worthy to include in the story, what are they trying to say to us? These people who have been with Christ three days and on whom he has compassion is a precursor, something that shows us what happens when we are with Christ during the three days that matter the most in the gospels three days when Christ is in the tomb. If we are joined with Christ, if we are with him three days, that means we have died with him. That's that's the implication of this. If the people were with him three days, the gospel writers are trying to tell us something, that means that we also are with Christ three days in the tomb. We've journeyed with him. This is an ascetical thing that we're seeing. The people are in uh, a, a desert place. They're not right around town where they can uh, pop in for a kebab at a local stand or get drive through They're in the desert. They're with Christ in the desert, in dry and barren places. And he has compassion on them. We don't hear Christ having compassion frequently on those who are comfortable. <laughs> uh, in fact, when he talks about sin the most, when he gives some of the most biting examples of um, what's wrong with us as people, when he gives the most cutting parables, it's usually at a banquet. (laughs) It's usually when people are feasting and reclining and at ease and relaxed. That's when sin seems to need the calling out of Christ the most. But when he has compassion on people where is that? That's in the desert. That's in the dry places of three days in the desert. And this relates to what St. Paul was talking about in his epistle, in our epistle reading, in his letter to the Romans. Paul is talking about a life of servitude, a life of effort a life of asceticism, of athleticism, that's what the word means. Asceticism means athleticism. Usually we uh, use the word asceticism instead of athleticism in order to indicate that we're not talking specifically about physical effort, but rather spiritual effort. St. Paul is talking about a life of asceticism and servitude to God. It's not always easy to serve God. Sometimes we have to follow him into places we'd rather not be, places that will not be comfortable, where we will not be at ease. But it's in those places that Christ looks on us and has compassion. He says, I don't want to send them away without taking care of them because they'll faint, they'll fail. If they go through the trouble of following me, I need to feed them. And how does he feed them? Well, he feeds them by miraculously giving them bread. Now this particular story, a feeding of the 4,000, there are actually two instances of Christ feeding multitudes in the Gospels. I want to just make this point briefly because it's important for us to know historically how this story works in the ministry of Christ. This is actually the second time that Jesus has fed a multitude. And you'd think his disciples uh, wouldn't ask the question at this point, how are we to feed so many people out here? they 've seen it done before the first time he fed around five thousand people ish it's hard to it's hard to know exactly how many people and this one is actually uh, in, in certain it says that there is you know four thousand men in addition, there were women and children and then in other places it just says four thousand people, but there were a feeding of five thousand people and a feeding of four thousand people. The feeding of the five thousand was near the Sea of Galilee it was near um Sort of the northern region of Judea, but still home turf for the Jews, right and when he fed them, um, he took up twelve baskets of food left over, twelve being a very Jewish number, twelve tribes. Jesus uh, took around him twelve disciples in order to echo that the the people of Israel the number of Of uh, the tribes is 12 and so that number really goes with a Jewish setting but at this feeding the feeding of the 4000 he was in the region of the Decapolis which was a place where a lot of Gentiles were it was kind of a bordering area between Judea and more Gentile lands and so any Jews living there would have been surrounded by Gentile uh, people by pagan temples Pagan deities, Rome had a much stronger presence there. They were tolerated a lot more because life was very Roman. And this was the region, a desert area near that place that Jesus feeds the 4,000. And in this story, he takes up how many baskets of food at the end? Seven. So remember, when you see numbers in the Gospels, pay attention. When Jesus takes up 12 baskets of food, the feeding of the people in a Jewish area, well, that number fits, doesn't it? When he takes up seven baskets of food in a more Gentile area, an area out beyond the borders of Israel and into the rest of the world, there's a number here, seven, that indicates something else in Jewish thought, and that is perfection, fullness, wholeness. It took seven days to complete creation and that number seven indicates that there is a fullness happening now. And Why would that number be important in this story? Well, because the fullness of the Gentiles were promised to come into the, the life of Israel at some point. And I think that's what this number indicates. Jesus, once again, just like in the miraculous catch of fishes, is enacting in real life, through a miracle, a parable a teaching that he wants to communicate something to his disciples and to those who would follow after them. And I think this is what he's communicating in this miracle with the taking up of seven baskets of food. But the point of the miracle primarily is that he feeds people miraculously through himself. And how does he do that? Through bread, a miraculous feeding with bread. Now, if the people have been with him three days and that's supposed to mean something for us now reading this story after the fact in the church, then the way Christ feeds the people is also supposed to mean something for us. Listen to what he does when the disciples give him the seven loaves. He took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them And gave them to his disciples to set before the people. Again, this is one of those things that we can just blow by at a million miles an hour because we're reading to get through it. But if we stop and look at that sentence, it might ring familiar to us because we've read this other places. He took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples. This is the same language used for the previous miracle when he fed the 5,000 people, but more importantly, it's the exact same language used in the night in which he was betrayed. The words that we read and hear proclaimed every mass when we celebrate the divine liturgy, we hear the priest at the table using the words of St. Paul from 1 Corinthians, which he got from the disciples who were with Jesus on that night of the Last Supper. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all the Synoptic Gospels, all use this exact same language too. Jesus takes bread. He blesses it, or gives thanks. Those mean the same thing. He breaks it, and he gives it. This fourfold action is so Eucharistic. Jesus takes what is there, what's presented, He takes the stuff of the earth. He approves of it by taking it. He blesses it, which means he gives thanks for it. He thanks God. He thanks his Father for the blessing of this fruit of the earth. He breaks it. That means this is to be distributed. It has to be like any sacrifice. If you're going to sacrifice something, it must be changed in order to be sacrificed. It must be broken up. What is good in its wholeness is now broken up so that it can be shared. And then he gives it. So this action that he does in the night in which he was betrayed during his last supper is the exact same thing he does in this miracle. We are absolutely supposed to be reading Eucharistic language when we read this uh, this story of Jesus feeding the multitude. And so we apply that to us in this church today because that's what we do. That's why we're here. Everything that we hear in this, in the Gospels, from the epistle to the Gospel reading, in the Bible, everything we hear in the chants of the church, everything we hear at the altar, all of this is obviously a bigger context than just us. This isn't just a personal private thing, but it is something that we personally partake of. We join with it. This is meant for us. Church is not something to just show up and let it wash over you. It's something to engage with, listen to the words, understand, comprehend what's going on. When we journey with Jesus, three days in the wilderness, what that means is that we are, like St. Paul says, giving ourselves over to God to be his servants. It means we're willing to walk with him, to carry our cross, as Jesus said, willing to die for him, to die to ourselves so that we may live in Christ. And when we empty ourselves, when we follow him into desert places, and we show that athleticism of our hearts when we put forth the effort what does christ do for us he has compassion on us and then he feeds us from his own power his own self that bread would not have been enough to feed the multitude so it was the power of christ it was christ's very self who fed the people not the bread it was christ's They were feeding on him. And that's what we do in the Eucharist. Christ communicates his very life to us through the bread and the wine of the Eucharist. He created the bread and the wine in the first place. Everything that has matter, everything that has sustenance, substance, existence, being, it comes from Christ. In a sense, everything is god because everything comes from god if it exists it comes from existence himself so don't be surprised when the church tells you when we eat the bread and drink the wine that we are truly eating and drinking christ now this is a different presence of god in the bread and the wine we believe than just anything else that exists but don't be surprised that if god can be in all things, because all things have being in him, then of course, in a special way, he can be in the bread and the wine. And when we eat it, because that's what we do, we're creatures with mouths, and we're designed to eat. We need to eat, and God knows that. When we eat Christ, we have Christ inside us. We have the very presence of Christ changing into our stuff in order to fill us, to heal us, so that we don't faint along the way. This is the point of this story today. It's the point of the epistle with St. Paul's uh, exhortion to live as servants of God. It's the point of the psalm verses that join these two Bible readings together, and it's the point of the gospel. It's the point of church today. It's the point of church every day. To put a little effort into following Christ and to be fed by him because he has compassion on us. If I had to exhort us to do anything, if I have to give some sort of a, you know, sermon-y exhortation here, it would just be this put in the effort. Follow Christ into the desert. Do what you need to do in order to attain Christ. If you don't feel like you have attained Christ, if you don't feel like you're close to Christ, put in the effort. Pray. If you are missing the sacrament, put in the effort. Call Deacon Benjamin. Request some pastoral assistance. Do whatever you need to do to attain Christ, and He will meet you, and He will feed you. We have that promise. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and Reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox Mission in Atlanta, Georgia.